0: Cloud Foundry is an open-source platform as a service. Companies use Cloud Foundry as a control plane to deploy and manage applications. It provides abstractions for microservices and continuous integration. Cornelia Davis joins the show to discuss Cloud Foundry. I interviewed her at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, where enterprises share their stories of improving their culture and their technology stacks. Cornelia explained how and why a large enterprise adopts Cloud Foundry, and why they often hire a company like Pivotal to help them as they migrate their infrastructure and change their processes. This is a great show on Cloud Foundry because I hadn't done a show about Cloud Foundry before, but I know so many companies use it to manage their infrastructure. And if you are interested in Cloud Foundry, then you might like this episode. In any case, you'll like it because Cornelia is a great guest and explains things really well. So I hope you enjoy it. here with Cornelia Davis from Pivotal. Cornelia, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Today we're gonna to be talking about Cloud Foundry. So why don't you start off by giving us a bit of a brief history for what Cloud Foundry is and how Pivotal moved into it and what the relation is to DevOps.
1: Sure, and, and maybe I'll uh, share that with a little bit of a personal story. So I came to Pivotal. Pivotal, um, for those of you who don't know, is a spin-off from EMC and VMware, which is actually quite relevant to the question that you just asked. Um, I came to Pivotal from EMC, and at EMC, I was working for quite a number of years in the corporate CTO office, and I was working in the architecture group um, and working on emerging tech. And about a bit more than four years ago, I was rolling off of a project, and my boss at the time, Tom McGuire, said... Um, you know, I'd really like you to start looking at platform as a service, I think that's going to be very relevant moving forward. And naturally, because we were EMC and VMware as part of EMC, VMware was already incubating Cloud Foundry at the time. It was early days, it was about a year, maybe a year and a half in on Cloud Foundry. And so I started looking into Cloud Foundry, um, working with other groups within EMC to kind of explore what Cloud Foundry could mean for them. And then the Pivotal spin-off happened, and um, by that time I was head over heels in love with this product, um, with this Cloud Foundry product. And I joined the product team, uh, the, the Cloud Foundry product organization, and started working with customers. Now I need to back up a little bit because when I first started looking at platform as a service, um, I thought it was all about me. And what I mean by that is that I'm a, a lifelong developer. I'm a computer scientist. I've always been on the development side, never been on the operations side at all. And I, when I first started researching it, I was doing these, um, you know, Googling things and looking at reports from analysts and looking at tech, tech publications and things like that. And all of the headlines read, platform as a service is, a, is for the developer. It makes the developer's lives easier. It's, it's about developer productivity. So I thought it was all about me. I thought, sweet, you want to make my job easier? That's great. And I believed that, actually, for the first eight months or so that I worked on Cloud Foundry. And then when I started working with customers and started going out and working with them, the, the product, we didn't even have a product. Pivotal had no Cloud Foundry product. We had an open source project at the time. And we were doing some consulting services and things like that. But we were out, there it was very early days helping customers kind of wrap, the, start to grok this, this new thing that was promising to maybe change things up a little bit. And I wasn't more than a month in working with customers and I came home and I told my husband, I'm working on an operations product. Mm. I am working on a data center product that is just as much or even more for the developer. I mean, for the operator than it is the developer. And that was a big epiphany moment for me.
0: So so that was four years ago, roughly, I guess, three and a half, basically. My epiphany
1: moment was maybe three and a half years ago or so. Yeah.
0: So what was the relationship like? I mean, technology moves so fast, it's very easy to forget what things were like three and a half years ago. What was the relationship like for a typical company that, you know, that is now that might be working with Pivotal Cloud Foundry today? What was the relationship between development and operations back then? Well,
1: that relationship, unfortunately, still exists in a lot of companies today, which is why here... In
0: in the same form.
1: In the same form, although we have great exemplars now of the possibility for change. But that relationship was predominantly adversarial. And more than anything else, it was siloed. It was, we had the development organization, and we had some ancillary organizations around the development organization, like quality assurance or business analytics. You know, there were kind of bridges to the development silo on either edge, but it was very much a silo, and then the operations team was siloed as well, and the reason that I say it was adversarial and still is in a lot of organizations is because they're really incentivized along different Avenues. So the developers are incentivized to ship features on time and on schedule, and operations teams are incentivized with things like uptime. What's missing there is actually the incentive of creating value and bringing value to the customer. Neither of those organizations have that, so their their incentives are actually not in alignment, um, and they're sometimes in conflict. Um, And it turns out that platform helps platform isn't the only thing you need people process and technology Not just technology, but the platform helps tremendously in a number of ways that we can kind of explore Um, But the relationship was very much it is it's exemplified in the quote that always makes Customers that I'm chatting with cringe and kind of nod knowingly at each other, which is it works on my machine Mm,
0: Certainly. Yeah, so the relationship I am thinking of is I'm a developer, I make some change to the code and I it passes all my tests so I deploy it to a server somewhere. Now it is the responsibility of the operations team. This is how things functioned in 2011, 2010 or whatever. How does that differ from the post platform the as a service world where you have development and operations that are operating on the same platform.
1: What's interesting about that is that you're right, development and operations are operating on the same platform, but the platform actually allows you to put boundaries in kind of a different direction, if you will. If you think of the silos as kind of having vertical boundaries where we're throwing things over the wall, so there's a wall between these different silos, What it allows us to do is it allows us to kind of turn that sideways and it allows us to say, well, let's make the job of platform to be that the application team, and notice that I'm not using the term development team, I'm using the term application team. The application team can be self-sufficient in not only developing but operating their applications on top of something, and that something used to be infrastructure, it used to be servers, networks, storage, and that developers often don't have and shouldn't have to have deep knowledge in infrastructure to be able to develop and bring their their software to production, which is why you ended up with these different skill sets and these different silos. So now the role is, when I say turn it on its side, is we actually have two different product teams in place. The application team is the team that's bringing some, let's say mobile app or web app to some end consumer. So whether it's the customer of that organization or it's maybe an internal application used by associates on a retail floor or something like that. So they're building that end end application. But the other product team is the team that is actually providing the platform and the platform is now the product that has its consumers. Its consumers are the app team. Now, both of those product organizations now, the app team and the platform team, have developers and operators, and they have their product that they're responsible for developing and operating, and they have the right tool sets. They don't have the same tool set. The platform team is actually providing the tool set and the abstractions and the contract up to the application team.
0: Mm So can you talk more about how, how a company develops that type of team structure? Because that is probably, I mean, you're basically describing platform this platform as having such a profound potential impact that companies should restructure their teams to, accom- not accommodate it, but more the the platform accommodates the team structure that would be ideal for them to operate more harmoniously. Can you talk more about how... So Pivotal works with companies that want to deploy Cloud Foundry and they want to be using it as their platform. They want to be using it as as a tool to institute this more harmonious relationship. How does a company, a, a large enterprise, start to use Cloud Foundry, and how do you as Pivotal... Uh, like teach them or tell them how to, or work with them to get into that mode where they can facilitate changes that where they're working, uh, in a better fashion.
1: So it's interesting. It, it almost always starts with the grassroots movement. It almost always starts with people who are very innovative. A few champions that are maybe in the architecture position or, um, or are tired of feeling the pain. They might come from the operations side. They might come from the development side. We've had both. Um, and they start to explore and understand different ways of doing things. And when they realize, for example, that Cloud Foundry allows them to just provide their their code, um, our VP of R&D for, for Cloud Foundry has this great haiku which says, um, here's my code, run it in the cloud for me, I don't care how. And so when we have, for example, developers that realize, oh my gosh, I can save myself and the operations teams, and that might be me, because I, my my team is responsible for development and operations. Even if it's not the same individual, it's my team. Um, I can get rid of a lot of that pain of it works on my machine, it doesn't work on this machine. So that's what platform provides, is kind of consistent environment through the life cycle and so on. So it, it often starts with that grassroots. Um, at some point though, not too far, it, along in the grassroots, we start to see the need for getting some executive um, air cover. Once we get the executive air cover, the cool thing that can happen is you can define, and this is typically the way that we do things at Pivotal, is we we don't like to come in and just do abstract coaching, for example, or just do workshops in the abstract. We really like to help clients identify a product that they want to build And that product can't be too small that there's not enough visibility. And it can't be too large that you can't be successful in a reasonably short time period. But we try to find a product that needs to be built.
0: So you come in, you say, what is a product you want to build? And you help them decide, okay, here is a pragmatic way of restructuring where you might be able to build that product more easily. And you talk to the executive management team and you say, hey, I think you might be able to ship this product in a more uh, efficient fashion in a way that might be replicable down the line if you restructure this way. Is exactly. that accurate?
1: Exactly, and so you need that executive air cover to give them the ability to go off and do this first experiment. And then when we do that first experiment, we say here are the roles that we need. Here, are the, Here's the way that we're going to do things. First of all, you need to have that those two different teams. So you need to have a team that's going to be responsible for standing up that initial version of the platform because that's a huge enabler of, of what we're talking about here. And you need to en- enable that team. You need to bring together, design, the right product management. So product management sometimes is a combination of your traditional business analyst, but you have to have somebody from the business that's there. You don't only want the proxy. You want somebody who's the business Individual that's partnering with maybe the business analyst to be the product manager, um, and then the stories in your backlog don't just include stories for implementing features and unit tests, but they also include stories that in, um, that build pipelines that automatically do a CF push into the prod environment when you're when you've passed all the tests, that automatically create smoke tests so that you can have your monitoring so that when you deploy into production, the smoke tests are deployed alongside of it mm. so that you can immediately start monitoring the smoke tests. And and it's a completely different way of thinking.
0: So when you're talking about the things that the platform provides that a company can take advantage of when you educate them on how Cloud Foundry works, and we're talking about things that... Unify the things that the developer sees, so it's not it just works on my box and the the operational challenges that the ops person sees. Are we talking about like is are are the positive effects of cloud foundry? Are they mostly based in the idea that it's easy to make replicable in, in environments and where you have a very consistent uh, sense of deployment between them? Is it about uh, having a platform that Is tightly coupled with your continuous integration tool. What is the tooling of the platform that you actually that you actually are getting as an organization that's adopting a platform as a service?
1: It's actually all of those things and more than what you just talked. You know, the the examples that you just gave. Um, There are uh, so. First and foremost, I think the most important thing is that the platform provides the right abstractions for that application team to work at. And what I mean by that is that um, we sometimes talk about this this cloud era, and I'll I'll clarify what I mean by cloud as a part of this. Um, We sometimes talk about this cloud era as kind of the third platform, the first platform being mainframe. Then we saw a huge shift in architectures and everything else around that changed when we went from mainframes to client server, um, PC era, everything changed. And now everything's changing again. It's a huge architectural shift to move from this client server into the cloud. Now what I mean by the cloud is not GCP or AWS. I don't necessarily just, I'm not constrained to this definition of it's in somebody else's data center. It's really about um, the way that the cloud, uh, the abstractions that the cloud has and then the, the, the functionality that the cloud brings. So one of the things that exemplifies the cloud, again, it's more not so much where you compute, it's how you compute. One of the things that the cloud has that we didn't necessarily have in the previous era is that things are always changing. In the previous era, we And I, I grew up in that area, so I've been doing this for 30 years. So I grew up in that era, and and I worked on products like Documentum, which is how I came to EMC. I have no idea what that is. So Documentum <laughs> was a, con- a content management system okay. um, that was originally built maybe 25 years ago or so. So it was very much built in this client-server yeah. model. And so the architecture was you had your database, then you had... The you know application tier and then initially it was thick clients on the desktop and then eventually we got a web client which is not really markedly different. It's only slightly different from the rich client. Um, <clears throat> slightly better. Well when we built that application we built Documentum assuming that the storage and that the Oracle database for example that you were running on were going to be stable. Mm. We assumed that they would be solid and if Oracle went belly-up, we threw our hands up in the air and said, not our fault. Oracle went belly-up. So this
0: is a remarc- remarkably different world than the cloud where you just expect everything to be transient and fail all the time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so I bring that up because you were asking, back to the question that you were asking, which is, what does Cloud Foundry bring? Cloud Foundry brings those principles. It, it realizes those principles So for example, when you deploy an application onto Cloud Foundry, let's say you deploy that application and you have scale needs, so you scale it out to 10 instances, if you lose a rack in your data center or Amazon loses a rack in their data center, um, provided you had had Cloud Foundry configured across more than one rack, or we sometimes call them availability zones, um, which is easy to do, Cloud Foundry takes care of distributing that load across the racks for you. That's no longer a developer concern. So we we often hear these stories of Amazon has a problem, or an availability zone goes down, and a company that had all of their stuff running on that one AZ or in that one single region screams and says, Amazon, it's all your fault. That's like Documentum saying, Oracle, it's all your fault. Um, It's not Amazon's fault. Amazon never promised you that that would never go down. They give you the opportunity of leveraging multiple data centers or multiple availability zones. But if you're doing it just on straight EC2, it's it's the developers and the operations team's responsibility of the app team. The app team's responsible for implementing all of that. Cloud Foundry shifts that burden down into the platform this says the platform will take care of that for you so that you, the app team, the app developer and the app operator can simply say, here's my code, run it for me. I don't care how we will distribute it across AZs. So when you lose an AZ, you're still up and running. That's a huge difference.
0: Absolutely. Can you give, so companies like Amazon often have things that are built on top of their own infrastructure as a service. That may create some abstractions that give people a, the feeling of a platform as a service. I mean, this this whole platform as a service, uh, there's it's a it's a uh, a big market. There's all kind, of, and for good reason. There's all kind. I mean, Heroku is a very different thing than Cloud Foundry. You know, I I want Heroku as an individual developer hacking on something. I may not want that as a large enterprise. Uh, Can you give more color on where Cloud Foundry sits in the market of different platform-as-a-service products? Because I think everything that you've described with platform-as-a-service, like Heroku, for example, I don't want to deal with auto scaling groups on Amazon. I don't want to deal with um, uh, availability zones. I don't want to deal with uh, plugging into some CDN. I just want everything to be taken care of by Heroku. I don't want to think about anything. Talk more about where Cloud Foundry sits on that spectrum of different platforms as a service.
1: So the the one thing that Cloud Foundry has um, over, let's say, an Amazon solution on top of their own infrastructure or Heroku has being just a SaaS service.
0: Do, and, sorry to interrupt, but does, does Amazon have something that's, that's kind of like Cloud Foundry?
1: Uh, no, they don't have a Cloud Foundry-like thing. They right. don't have a full PaaS, but they have some some...
0: They have, like, what, what are those, uh, they have like comp- compositions of, of their own products, right? Yep. That like kind of give you, a, it's like a one click and deploy like 15 services and it does some stuff for you. Yep, it, right?
1: it, it's, got, it's got some little things that smack of small bits of platform as a service, but they don't have a platform as a service, if you will. Um, but what Cloud Foundry does, there's a couple of things that are really compelling about Cloud Foundry. First of all, from the get-go, it was um, built to be multi-cloud. So Cloud Foundry will run on AWS, it runs on GCP, it runs on OpenStack, it runs on vSphere. So it runs in your own data center or it runs up in the cloud. So Heroku, for example, is just a SaaS service. Um, and so this, we, we also offer run.pivotal.io, so we do offer Cloud Foundry as a SaaS service, but that's actually a very small part of our business. Most of our business is that companies want to own their own platform as a service, whether they deploy it up on somebody else, in somebody else's data center like GCP or um, Azure or uh, AWS, or in their own you know, OpenStack or vSphere-based environment in their own data centers. They want to own their platform. And we increasingly have more and more clients that are deploying it actually in more than one location. So they've got something in their own data center, but then they also deploy it up on Azure, for example, to make sure that they have burst capacity or or um, just two different data centers, sure. just just disaster recovery, yeah, yeah. that type of a thing. So that's one of the things. Um, the other thing, of course, is that um, Cloud Foundry is is all entirely open source and um, it's funny because when I first started um, a couple of anecdotes 10 years ago I used to joke around that if my father-in-law ever wins the lottery and I would always say my father-in-law because he's the only one who plays it regularly but I always said if he ever wins the lottery I'm gonna quit my job and work on open source. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there were very few people working on open source and that seemed like just the most amazing thing. And now the brilliant thing is that I and so many other people are gainfully employed and get to work on open source. And that's just been a fantastic shift. But Cloud Foundry's been open source from the first day. Although I chuckle a little bit because when I first joined the Cloud Foundry team three and a half years ago, I sometimes put air quotes around that open source. The source code was out there, it was on GitHub, but the only committers were pivotal people. And that's not really, I mean open source, I didn't understand open source that well four years ago, but I always had the sense that made me uncomfortable and now I understand very clearly that open source is not just the availability of the source code, but it's the, the vitality of the community, it's the number of committers and those types of things. And so for the last, I would say, couple of years or so, we've had the Cloud Foundry Foundation. So, um, Pivotal actually donated all of the open source code into, it's a Linux foundation. And, and that, that, So now we really, I took the air quotes away. We are an open source project. We don't, Pivotal doesn't own the code anymore. We don't own the process anymore. We still have a great number of the committers. I would say the the vast majority of the committers, but we now have committers from our competitors. We have committers from IBM and from from Intel and from many other companies that you know, competitors and non-competitors as well.
0: Very interested in your thoughts on the business shifts that are going on as we're seeing Kubernetes get popular. We're seeing uh, there's plenty of people using Mesos. And these are these things that are sort of lower level orchestration engines um, that might serve as primitives for people to build other platforms on top of, like Red Hat built a plat- platform called OpenShift on top of Kubernetes. Um, which seem somewhat similar to Cloud Foundry. I'm not sure like how, if it plays in exactly the same market, but um, does is Cloud Foundry are the abstractions built in a way where you can plug into the Kubernetes ecosystem like if Kubernetes uh, provides enough economies of scale and you really want to give a pre-existing customer like, hey, you really should swap out your lower uh, your lower tier of orchestration with Kubernetes, it, can you take advantage of that evolving ecosystem?
1: Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And and the reality is that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we say about Cloud Foundry is that we are intentionally and unapologetically opinionated. Oh. So what we do with Cloud Foundry is we, in fact provide you a safer environment in which your applications will run which is a nice way of saying what some people will will interpret as very negative which is to say it's a much more constrained environment so we don't allow you we don't give you the rope to hang
0: yourself with
1: now that is sometimes laid at our at our doorstep as a
0: criticism that's why i use heroku
1: yep well, Heroku is 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 somewhat opinionated as well. No,
0: that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's exactly why I use Heroku. Because exactly. because I won't hang myself. Because I have no idea how to be an ops person.
1: Precisely. I don't want
0: it. I don't don't want to even be exposed to things where I can hang myself. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. And when you're building a greenfield application, that is most often exactly where you right. want to go, <laughs> because you you have the opportunity to build things in a new architecture. So going back to the example that we talked about earlier where we say, you know, you've got an availability zone that goes down. I actually didn't carry that example all the way forward. You have an availability zone that goes down. You've still got instances that are running. Well, Cloud Foundry, not only do you have those instances still running, but Cloud Foundry will automatically detect that you only have half your capacity running and it'll automatically spin up new instances. Well, it can only do that if those instances were stateless. If you were depending on the state that existed on that crashed rack, then you're in a world of hurt. Then how do you restart? So back to my documentum days, we had these two components, the dock base and then the web web tier. And if the dock base went down, you couldn't just bring the dock base up and it would keep going. You had to bring the whole system down because the web tier expected the dock, dock base to be up first. So there's certain architectural patterns that you have to follow. And when you're building a greenfield application, you can, and and we spend a lot of time doing workshops, teaching people those cloud native architectural patterns and those types of things, and, and people can learn them and they can follow those in a greenfield. But, and if our customers were all net new startup customers, that's all we'd have to do. But our customers are the customers that are here at the DevOps Enterprise sure. Summit. They're the Ford, Ford Motor Companies yeah. and the All States. They're these big corporations that have been around for, you know, tens, if not over a hundred years, that have information technology solutions that have been around for a long time, and there is no reason to move them. Yeah. And now here at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, we talk about okay, we've got these applications now. And they're often very, very painful to keep up and running and that's where, going back to your initial question about this relationship between dev and ops, this adversarial relationship, that that still exists in a lot of these organizations, especially around these long-standing applications that have been in production for a long time. Um, and so what we wanna do is we wanna make those better. And now there, there's there's a continuum Sometimes those applications, what we find when we work with our our customers is we find that a lot of those applications actually can be brought onto Cloud Foundry with minimal change. Um, It turns out that some of these architectural patterns like separating your persistence from your, your business logic are patterns that people were starting to adopt and to various degrees have been successful. And if they're already running in Tomcat, for example, we can move those workloads. But something like Documentum doesn't belong as an application in Cloud Foundry. That really needs a kind of, it needs more of an infrastructure um, dial tone to it. It needs some of the rope, if you will, um, to be able to bundle it together, maybe not hang themselves with, but hopefully they use it to just tie things together. Um, and so we want to then use, there's a lot of tools out there that have been designed to help that. Mm. Tools like Puppet and Chef and some of these orchestration engines. And some of the ones that you even mentioned, um, you know, earlier, like OpenShift and Mesos yeah. still leave some of those potentially rough edges on there mm. that might make it more suitable to do some of these traditional tried not to use the word legacy, but there I just said it, these traditional applications. Um, And so um, the reality is that some workloads should take one channel, some workloads should take another channel. And I don't want to leave your listeners with the, the idea that Cloud Foundry is only suitable for um greenfield because right. we are spending a tremendous amount of time and we we have this one offering for example our services group which will um replatform 10 apps in 10 weeks oh. so these are existing apps that we replatform onto cloud foundry by just making configuration configuration changes and a few you know shifts here and there mm-hmm. and that's been very very successful but there, there's room for other things. Um, it's almost a little bit like Docker. You know, we don't talk about Docker as much. It's not the word that's in every, every sentence like it was a year ago. Um, but we, we went through that experience of, every, of the Docker hype and well, can Cloud, Foundry, can Cloud Foundry run Docker? And the answer is absolutely. You, we, we, can, we run Docker images. So we don't want to put our customers into the, in the awkward position where they have to choose one or the other. And so there is room for all of those things. Um, and it really just depends on what you're what you're trying to accomplish and what skill sets you have and all of those types of things. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I want to shift back to that idea of, you know, because we've kind of been talking about the Greenfield stuff. And so when you go to a company, like if you go to Ford Motor Company or some other large organization, and you do what we were talking about earlier, where you say, okay, you want to get Cloud Foundry up and running, uh, what you might want to do is you should identify a project that you want to accomplish, and we will use that project as the greenfield thing that we is the first Cloud Foundry um, pro, pro, not, not prototype um, point of, or uh, proof, proof of concept. concept. That's that's what I was looking for. So you get a proof of concept. And you orchestrate the teams in a way where they can build that proof of concept and you get them up and running on Cloud Foundry. And then they've shown the base case that we can now induct upon within the company. So at that point, does, does Pivotal like depart or just like become, you know, just like kind of become available over email for to answer any questions and the company is able to adopt and have internal evangelism and have Cloud Foundry like, can they replicate that to other or to other greenfield projects or to brownfield projects like what happens after that first event where they build a proof of concept
1: so i will tell you spoiler alert that our goal at the end is to leave because what we believe is that these that all of these companies need to be self-sufficient and and so our goal is not to come in and do work for you but to do work with you and eventually you take over that work yourself however it's not after that first project um, generally, that happens after several years of engaging, especially with these large corporations. So after that initial proof of concept, that oftentimes gives, um, it does a couple of important things. It gives an exemplar that can be used to, um, to really uh, energize or um, people, the, the, the workers, the, the boots on the ground, sure. some of whom are filled with a lot of fear because things are changing around yeah. them. So it gives an exemplar and, and the ability to, to really evangelize, look how great this is and look how much fun we had. It also is a great exemplar that you can use and through all the way up through the management chain, up into executive management, even over into your chief financial, fi- financial office, um, your HR department to help them see the benefits of making some of the changes because we talked, we barely touched upon kind of organizational structural changes. Some of those are going to happen. Um, this we have in IT. We often have these plan, build, run silos, um, and I'm not saying that you're not, not going to plan, build, or run. You are going to plan, build, and run, but you're not going to do that along those siloed boundaries anymore. You're going to have a different organizational structure in a few years. It will happen if you if you want to continue to be successful. So that first project is important for that, um, and then we do uh, we do a lot of things to help um, clients because scaling is really what you're asking about. After you've done that first project, how do you scale out?
0: Scaling the process. Yes,
1: yeah, scaling the process exactly. How do you scale out to the, a large organization so that it isn't just this one product that you built; it's multiple products. And there, let me tell you just one anecdote, Um, I have a a very large retailer that I was involved in in the early days and then a colleague of mine ended up being boots on the ground, um, was there walking the halls a couple of times a week, a couple of days a week for a year or so. Um, they, uh, They landed Cloud Foundry in about August of last year. So stood up their first proof of concept um, platform and did the first, they actually did a couple of products that were deploying right onto the platform, all the way through the dev, all the way out to production. So they're running the app in production on Cloud Foundry. And one of the things that he did while he was there was he started running these workshops and the workshops were We're going to teach you some basics on how to do Cloud Foundry, how it's different, how you deploy your code, how you monitor your code, how you scale it, how you do capacity planning, um, how you do upgrades, rolling upgrades, zero downtime upgrades. So it was, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. But what was unique about this was, and very intentional, was that we insisted on a cross-section of participants. So we said, we will only run the workshop if you bring people from your current development organization, your current QA organization, your current project management office, your current operations teams. If you don't get those people signed up, we will cancel. I mean, we were that opinionated. We said, you've got to have these folks here. So we ran this workshop over, over two days and we, th- what was so important about that was that it was a shared experience. So now your operations teams were there the very first time that you did a CF push. And your developers were there when the operations teams were saying, how do I see those metrics? And so it was a shared experience there. We also did devious things like when we went to lunch, we kind of let it go on. And we had two-hour lunches where these teams that had an adversarial relationship okay. shared a meal, oh. and I love to cook, so group sharing therapy. a meal, group therapy. Yeah. Well, the the, the punchline of all this is that um, my colleague Josh Cruck ran uh, about twenty of these workshops between August and December of last year. Since December, he has run exactly zero of them, but. Individuals at this organization have this year run 70, 80, 90 of them. They themselves, because one of the things that you do when you run these workshops is you start to identify who your champions are and you work more closely with them and you enable them now to carry the torch forward. And so Josh is no longer spending two days a week every week at this organization because they've become far more self-sufficient and that's the way that we work
0: fascinating okay well that that certainly aligns with a lot i mean that i'm that wraps us up into like the devops theme which is like and it's funny because i don't I, I haven't worked uh well i haven't worked at an organization in a year and a half uh since starting this podcast but the last company i worked at was amazon and There wasn't really anything like that, like what you're describing at the company, perhaps because, you know, the company was orchestrated, was built in the internet age. And so it was kind of built, well, actually... There was a period of time where they had a big monolithic application, and took them two, two, two and a half years to break it up into yeah. services. Perhaps over that time, there were group therapy sessions <laughs> yeah. where they were uh, almost they were, surely, almost surely, yeah, that's true. And then, uh, then eventually, they got to the Amazon that we know today with the two pizza teams and the highly distributed internal um, practices and whatnot. So, yeah, that's that's quite interesting um, that the the cultural shift really took place after. Um, after the or the early Cloud Foundry sessions yeah. there, and
1: it's really interesting, and that's you know that that kind of reflection on Amazon. We hear stories. We hear stories from Adrian Cockcroft on the on the ship that happened at Netflix. Yeah, and last year at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, um, one of my favorite talks was from Mike Bland, who is now with the 18F. Oh, but he was at Google. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he was one of the people that was
0: resp- 18F is the government organization for those who don't know. Yes. The government—it's kind of like the government digital service. Something I don't remember how it breaks down organizationally, but
1: that's right. They're kind of the the, the if you will the pivotal labs of the government.
0: The special forces. They're, they're
1: the special forces. They're the ones that are trying to come in and help organizations transform the way they build software. Government organizations. Yeah. Um, and uh, but Mike Bland—he's at the 18F now, um, but he was previously at Google. And he was one of the people who was responsible for the testing on the toilet, for example, which if you haven't heard that story, you should look it up. I encourage all your listeners to look it up. But Google didn't always have the, the culture that we were just talking about, the, the, the developer is responsible for quality, also responsible for operations. They themselves didn't have that initially and had to go through that cultural shift. Right. And one of the techniques that, that Mike talked about um, very eloquently last year, and the video is online and I encourage everyone to watch it. It was literally my favorite talk last year at DevOps, at DevOps Enterprise Summit. Um, was that they, in order to ch- shift this into this testing culture, one of the things they did was they posted testing tips on pieces of paper in the yeah. stalls in bathrooms. Yeah. And um, it's a great, great story about cultural change and and, and shift. And, yeah. You know.
0: Okay, well, Cornelia, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. I think this has been a great conversation about... You really tied together how the, the, so much so many of the sessions today are about culture, and um, which is great and obviously very important. But you really helped me tie together the connection between the software products that are developing and the cultural practices that come out of those products. So so thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>